Today's reading is from Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. And Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. The word of the Lord. There we go. We are having mic problems. Mic causes lots of problems. So, I mean, that is not uncommon to have mic problems. Uh, Anyway, good morning. I'm Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you, Cherry, for doing that reading. I actually really love this passage from Acts chapter 19. It's one that's been significant in my own life. Uh, The first time that I came across it, it instantly just kind of raised some questions for me. Now, some of you know part of my story, how I came to faith in my mid-20s and how my life really changed at that point, Uh, but there's obviously more to my story as well, and some more of that is that I actually had my first exposure to the church and to Jesus when I was a little bit younger in late elementary school, when my friend Duke invited me to a Christian summer camp, and uh, I went to this Christian summer camp, and That was the first place where I really heard about Jesus and who Jesus was. Um, I also learned how to do a lot of push-ups because they had a rule at the camp that if you cussed or took the the name of the Lord's Lord's name in vain, you'd have to do push-ups. And I cussed a lot and I took the Lord's name in vain a lot, so I had to do a lot of push-ups that summer. But I remember driving home on the windy road back from that summer camp uh, after the week and telling my mom that I wanted to start going to church. And she had a coworker who was Catholic. So we started going to the Catholic church a few towns over, and it was in the Catholic church where I was baptized. And I also received my first communion, and I was involved there for a little while, but I never read the scriptures at all. I didn't read the Bible. I didn't understand Jesus as king in any way. And I certainly didn't understand Jesus as the only way, as Peter says in Acts chapter 4, the only name by which we can be saved. I didn't understand any of that, and so there was no foundation, and I stopped going to church uh, a little bit later on, and then for quite a while just led a wild life until my mid-20s when I started reading the Bible, starting with the Gospels, and I got through the Gospels, and I got to this passage in Acts chapter 19 where you see these disciples that Paul is encountering in Ephesus, and these people have been baptized before, but they were baptized in the name of John. Paul tells them about Jesus, they're re-baptized, and then the Holy Spirit falls on them. 
And I'm looking at that and I'm like, do I need to be rebaptized? What steps do I have to take to please God? That's maybe a question that you've asked yourself in some way before. Am I taking the right steps to please God? Am I reading my Bible enough? Am I praying enough? Did I get baptized in the right way, or was I the right age, or was it at the right church? We tend to ask those questions a lot when things aren't particularly going well for us in life, when things are difficult. But then we ask the question in a sense like, is God disciplining me or punishing me because I, I'm not taking the right steps? If I did take the right steps, would something change? Or because of whatever I'm doing, is God withholding from me? Maybe you've even been thinking about some of these questions while we've been going through this series in Acts. We've been going through this series called On Mission for quite a while. We call it On Mission because we are all to be on mission when we're reading the book of Acts and seeing that we should be bearing witness of, to Jesus to everyone around us in all the areas of our lives and to the ends of the world. But there's a lot of spiritual activity that's been happening in the book of Acts, right? The Spirit of God has been moving in powerful ways. Miracles left and right, people getting healed, all kinds of things that are happening, and I want that. What do I have to do to get that in my life? Now, at the same time that we're going through Acts right now, we're also entering into a new season in the church calendar. So just a little test to see if you were paying attention, since it's already been said this morning. What season starts this week? Lent. Lent in unison. Great. Hey, how many of you, by show of hands, have participated or observed Lent in some way in the past? It's a good amount of hands. That's a good amount of hands. Okay, let me ask you this question, looking for answers. What, um, what is Lent? How would you describe Lent? Preparation, I heard that in stereo from two different locations, same word. Preparation for Jesus' death. Yeah, absolutely. It's a time where we're preparing ourselves for celebrating Easter. Uh-huh. What else? Fasting. Yeah, it's often this time where we, we fast, uh, traditionally from food and drink, but we fast from all kinds of things as well. Right? We give up, we abstain from certain things during Lent. Yep. What else? Sacrifice. sacrifice. Yeah, maybe we're making sacrifices during the time of, of Lent, things that kind of take some energy from us to do, right? Or certain decisions that we have to make in order to be able to sacrifice. In fact, that often is kind of some of the things that, are, that, that we think about with Lent, that aspect of sacrifice, self-discipline, right? There's a sense where we have to kind of train our bodies and we've got to start doing the things or not doing the things that we probably know we should be doing or not be doing all the time, but Lent's going to be the time where we kind of 
bring it into our lives in some way. And so for that reason, maybe Lent kind of gets a bad rep sometimes. But really, Lent is all about preparation, right? It is this season of preparation leading up to Easter. It's meant to prepare our hearts for the most important celebration that we have in the church. And ultimately, the main theme of Lent is repentance. It's a time where we're turning away from things in our lives that we don't need, and we're turning toward God. It's that time of repentance. There are three main practices historically that the church has always done for Lent. First one was mentioned, fasting. The other one is almsgiving or giving to the poor. And then there's praying. And basically, the idea is you give up something, but you don't just give it up, you give it away. That's the almsgiving. And in the midst of all of that, you're rededicating yourself to God in prayer and devotion. Now, we're going to talk more about fasting than anything else here at New Hope during this particular year of Lent. We've decided to focus on fasting, so there are going to be some videos and podcasts coming out in the coming weeks that are going to discuss fasting, um, and we're going to, there's going to be an invitation for you as well, maybe to fast from something if that's the right decision for you to make. In fact, even today, you're going to be able to participate in that way. Now, fasting may not be the right decision for you right now. Maybe God is doing something else in your life. But so put down whatever practice, whatever practice you're going to take on during this Lent season. It's important to understand, though, that there is meaning in what we do. There's meaning and significance for Lent. Lent is a period of 40 days. It's actually 46, but we don't count Sundays because we don't fast on Sundays. 40 <laughs> days of fasting that, that relates to Jesus' 40 days of fasting in the wilderness after he was baptized. So Lent is about a time where we identify with the suffering and with the fasting of Jesus in the wilderness as we're preparing ourselves for Easter. And it's something that the church has participated in for at least 1,800 years and has participated in globally all around the world. The church in all of its different veins have practiced Lent in some way. So it's important for us to know we're participating in something that's bigger than us, bigger than us individually, and it's bigger than even New Hope. It is, a, it is a historical thing and a global thing. And that's important for us to be a part of something that's bigger. And ultimately, Lent is about helping us to see something that's bigger as well. So this is, for you, an invitation to participate in Lent. Maybe for the first time, maybe more than you have before, it's an invitation for you to participate in Lent. Now, participating in Lent is meant to be something that helps to shape us and to form us because we're being shaped and formed by everything all around us all the time. And we don't want to be accidentally shaped by the world, but we want to intentionally take on practices that are going to allow God to come in and shape and form us into the image of Jesus. So Lent is an opportunity 
in that way. It's not a requirement. Lent isn't a perfect tradition, though. It's not like it was inspired by God and came through the Bible to us. It was something that the church came up with really early on in its practice. And it could be that Lent kind of raises some of the same questions that we're talking about today. Am I taking the right steps to please God? I don't know if I do this thing, will God uh, do something special for me in some way? If I take those right steps, and at the end of Lent, is there going to be a reward for me in some way? Or what happens if I fail? What if I don't keep the thing I said I was going to commit to? Is God going to withhold from me then? Now, ultimately, I think the answer to those questions is no, but I don't think they're really the right questions to be asking anyway. The question is, why should we participate in Lent? And I think that the answer to that is that when we take on these practices, when we take on these rhythms or these disciplines, these spiritual disciplines create room in our lives for the Spirit to actually work. It's in these disciplines that the Spirit is going to be moving. Okay, but I'm getting a little ahead of myself. We haven't even looked at the passage. So let's do that real quick. Acts chapter 19. If you've got a Bible, open it up to Acts 19 or a device. You can pull up Acts chapter 19. I'm going to start just with the first verse here. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. Now, Apollos was introduced in Acts chapter 18. We didn't get to go through that section. So if you want to learn more about Apollos, you can go back to Acts chapter 18 and read more about him. But the important thing to recognize in the connection here with Apollos is that here in Acts chapter 18 in verse 25, it says that Apollos, he knew only the baptism of John. That's the same description as the disciples that Paul encounters in Ephesus here, that they only knew the baptism of John. We're going to come back to that. But here, Paul is coming into Ephesus. Ephesus was a really important city. It was the uh, Roman capital city of Asia Minor, which is Turkey. It was a really large city, like much larger than most any other city at that time. Certainly much larger than uh, Philippi or Thessalonica or Athens. Last week, we were talking about Paul in Athens, which is in Greece. And since then, he's been traveling all over Turkey, and now he's coming to Ephesus. And Ephesus ends up being a place where kind of the narrative slows down in Acts. We get three chapters of Paul in Ephesus. And that's because it becomes an important place for the church as well. Luke's trying to draw our attention to that. It ends up being kind of this hub from which Paul is going out to all of these other places. So we get a lot of attention on on Ephesus. Ephesus is also a place where there was a lot of witchcraft and idolatry. If we were to keep on reading through chapter 19, which we won't get to today, you'll see that there were people who are practicing witchcraft. And as they're turning to Jesus, they're taking their witchy scrolls or whatever they have, and they're burning them because they're repenting of all of that. And then there were those who were worshiping Artemis, the goddess Artemis, and they're taking their idols and getting rid of their idols uh, as they're turning to Jesus. Let's keep reading here in um, 
Acts chapter 19 says, There he found, Paul found, some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now here, we've got these disciples who just had the baptism of John. John was the cousin of Jesus, and he was this fiery preacher who was out in the wilderness and baptizing people in the Jordan River. And it was a baptism of repentance because basically he was telling everybody, you got to get your act together. Now this is actually, this theme that we see in this uh, particular segment here where Jesus is better, particularly the baptism of Jesus is better than the baptism of John, is a, is a theme in Acts. This is the fifth time that Luke has highlighted it in his story that Jesus is better than John. And the reason for that is likely because there were a lot of, apost- uh, a lot of people like Apollos and these disciples who were baptized by John but didn't actually understand who Jesus was. So it was an issue at the time that Luke is trying to connect with. Now, that doesn't mean that John's baptism of repentance was wrong in any way. Repentance isn't wrong. Repentance is good. It's a a good thing to repent. But Paul's highlighting it here in this case just to say that was preparatory. What you experienced there in that repentance was to prepare you for something that's greater. I mean, that was John's whole task, right? Like, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Can I get a little Amy Grant singing in here? Anyone? <laughs> Emily Greco, a little Amy Grant. Yeah, there we go. It's in your head. You can hear it right now. I know, that, I know that you can. This connects with Lent, of course, right? Because remember, the overall theme of Lent is repentance. It's preparation in order to be able to make room for the Spirit working in our lives. So, Paul tells these disciples about Jesus. They end up getting baptized in the name of Jesus, and then the Holy Spirit comes down on them, and this is where it connects with my story, right? Like, should I be baptized again in order to receive the Spirit? I don't think that baptism's actually the critical feature of this passage, though. It's not the make-or-break thing that ends up working out for these disciples. In fact, you kind of get a picture of that, again, going back to Apollos. Because remember, Apollos was someone who only knew the baptism of John. He didn't get rebaptized. There's no hint of him being rebaptized at all in the story. Now, maybe he was, but Luke's not highlighting that at all because that's not the critical feature of the story. The critical feature of the story is what? The Spirit. The Spirit is the critical feature, and that's the end of our passage right here. Verse 6, when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. This is in line 
with the theme that we've been seeing throughout the book that Luke is communicating. It's a critical aspect of recognizing that the Holy Spirit is the signifier for recognizing a, a, a follower of Jesus. It's going to be the work of the Spirit that people should be looking for in a, a follower of Jesus. And in fact, this gives us a clue as to why Apollos was not rebaptized. Because back in chapter 18, it says right here that he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately. That uh, line there, great fervor, literally is he was enthusiastic in spirit, or he was enthusiastic in the spirit. He already had the spirit and knew about Jesus, so he didn't have to be rebaptized. It's the spirit that God wants to give to his people, to his church. That's the gift. And ultimately, it's the gift that we need to want, to desire in our lives. There's another clue to pick up here in the, in the text, and that is, it isn't baptism that brings about the Holy Spirit for these disciples. It's the laying on of Paul's hands. This is another example of Paul being compared to Peter. Because Peter and John, back in chapter 8, laid their hands on the Samaritans and the Holy Spirit fell on them. Now in this chapter, we see Paul laying his hands on these disciples and the Spirit is falling on them. Luke is just showing again that Paul is an apostle just like Peter is an apostle. You take all that together and I look at this passage and I say, this is descriptive of what was happening in the time and it's not prescriptive for what needs to happen at all times. So I connect that with my own story. I have not been rebaptized, by the way, because I was baptized in the name of Jesus when I was baptized in the Catholic Church. And we can see here that this is a description of a significant time in church history and what, the, what God was doing with the church at that time and is not meant to be taken as something that needs to happen for everybody all the time. It does kind of raise this tension, though, right, that we're talking about today. Would what steps do I need to take in order to receive the Spirit? What are the things that need to be done to please God? Maybe we'll get it right this Lent, unless we fail at Lent. Let me tell you a story about a movie I just watched this last week. It's new to me. It's called Chocolat. You have to say it with a French accent. Okay, the movie's not new. It's all the way from 2000, so I realize that's like more than 20 years old and it probably shouldn't be mentioned, but it's new to me. And it was, at that time, nominated for Best Picture, so it's gotta be good, right? And it has Johnny Depp in it, and he's not weird. <laughs> well, anyway, 
the movie isn't a perfect correlation to what we're talking about here today, except for the fact that it, is, it all takes place in Lent, during the Lent season. The main character, Vien, she's got a daughter, Anouk, and they kind of live a nomadic life. They follow wherever the north wind takes them. And at this point in the movie, the north wind brings them to this small village in France. And it's a village where everybody in the village goes to church. And there's this kind-hearted young priest who's controlled by the mayor of the town. And everyone's kind of afraid of that mayor and how he works through the church. Well, the tension in the plot comes in because Vienne is a chocolatier. She makes chocolate. She makes magical chocolate. And she decides to open up her chocolate shop right at the beginning of Lent when nobody should be eating chocolate. But gradually throughout the story, people in the village start to experience her chocolate. And anyone who tastes her chocolate experiences this new kind of life they just have like this vivaciousness that comes to them as they have this chocolate. Well, the mayor doesn't like that at all. The mayor is Renaud. We probably have a picture of Renaud here. There he is. He tries to work through the priest to control the people in the town so that they won't go and have this chocolate. And he's not like a bad guy. He's just very austere. He's very self-controlled. He's very rigid. He has been, I think, probably his whole life, and even more so during Lent. He's just kind of got to stick up his austere. We'll put, it, we'll put it that way. Well, eventually, Renaud has had enough. And so he breaks into the chocolate shop to smash all of the chocolate creations that Vienne has made. And as he's smashing all of the chocolate, one little bit touches his lip. And he tastes it. And he loses all control. And he gorges himself on all of the chocolate until he passes out in a drunken chocolate mess. <laughs> and Vienne finds him in the morning, passed out in a pool of chocolate. This is a good lesson for us. As we go, <laughs> this is a good lesson for us as we go into Lent. <laughs> because if we are always trying to mind our P's and Q's and maybe do a little extra for God at times as well, eventually we might break down a little bit. There's only so much willpower that any of us actually possesses. Have you ever tried to make a commitment to God and then failed at that commitment and then felt the guilt and the shame that comes from that? It's kind of a cyclical pattern for a lot of us, I think. After this point in Acts, Paul writes a letter to this church, probably to these disciples, to uh, the Ephesians. So it's the letter to the Ephesians later on in the New Testament. And in that, in that letter, he says, for it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, 
It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. That's an important verse, I think, or an important idea for us to keep in mind as we go into Lent. There's nothing we can do in Lent that's going to make us more pleasing to God. That's already happened through Jesus, and our faith in Jesus, then combined with the grace of God, makes us pleasing to God, not the disciplines that we undertake. David Benner, he's a psychologist and a pastor, he wrote, discipline, spiritual or otherwise, is a good servant, but a bad master. If we approach Lent with these disciplines as a servant, that could be good, but not if we let them become a master. Because ultimately, what we want is not just a life of discipline, we want the Spirit of God. We want the life that the Spirit is offering to us, that God is offering to us through the Spirit. And as you read through the Bible, that's a pretty good life. That's a life that's full of power. That's a life that is full of joy. That is a, a life that is marked by the presence, the known presence of God. That's what I want. That's the kind of life that I want, the spirit life. Life in the spirit, it isn't gutting it out. It's the life that Jesus led. It's the easy yoke that Jesus talked about. It's the invitation that's there, that originates from God and not from us. Do you long for that life? Longing is kind of the issue, though, because we don't always experience that life, do we? We're longing for it. We want it to happen. There have been plenty of times in my life where I have prayed for more of the Spirit in my life. And I feel like I've taken all the right steps. I've done all the right things. And those prayers have been unanswered. We have to recognize that what we read here in Acts, and I've talked about this before, is a special time in history where God is doing a significant, unique thing at that time. But do you know what happened right after that? The church started to build up its disciplines and its rhythms and its liturgy and its hierarchy because the power of the Spirit wasn't there in the same way. That's how it's been throughout history. There are times when the Spirit seems to be working in a dramatic fashion, and then there are times when it doesn't seem like that's happening at all. In fact, right now is one of those times where it seems to be like the Spirit is moving in a pretty strong way in the United States. People are talking about revival. That's what we call the Spirit working in that way. And I say, bring it on, right? Yes. We could all use some revival here for sure. Our own personal lives 
mirror history as well. We have moments where maybe we feel like God is really present with us or doing something particular in our lives or where we feel like he's really close to us and then we have a lot of moments where we don't feel that at all. These practices are important in those moments because most of what we experience is the longing, the waiting, the hoping for God to show up in a more dramatic way in our lives. These disciplines come in then to help keep our attention on God when we don't sense that he's working in a really strong way in our lives. They help us kind of look away from the things that could distract us from that and look toward God. But we have to do it in a way where it's not a posture of pleasing, but it's with a heart of longing. Posture of pleasing says, if this, then that. If I do really well in Lent, God's going to do something special in my life. If I don't do well in Lent, God's going to withhold from me in some way. Better to come at it with a heart of longing, saying, God, all I want is you. You are what I want. In fact, you are what I need, and I'm willing to give up anything in order to have you, God. That's the difference between the posture of pleasing and the heart of longing. And I'll be honest with you. There are years when I don't participate in Lent because I know in those years I would go at it with a posture of pleasing and I would not have the right heart of longing in it. Not that you can't form that heart of longing throughout Lent, but there are times where I've just had to say, I can't do it this year. My heart's not in the right place. There was a time when uh, Luke records this, and so does Matthew in their Gospels, when some other disciples of John, like Apollos and like these disciples in Acts 19, they came up to Jesus and they asked him, hey, why do we fast and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples they don't fast. This was Jesus' response, how Matthew records it. Jesus answers, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn? How can they be sad while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. Then they will mourn. Why do we fast? Why do we abstain from anything during Lent? Because we're mourning, we're grieving that Jesus hasn't returned and that his kingdom hasn't fully come yet. We want that in our lives and we grieve that it's gone. We're longing for him. What if we do, though, what do we do if we don't feel that longing? 
There are all kinds of reasons why we might not feel that longing in any particular time, but I think it's pretty common for us that we just have a lot of stuff in our lives that distracts us from actually wanting God, from missing Jesus, for longing for the Holy Spirit to come and work in our lives. Kind of like the, the, the people in Ephesus, how they had to get rid of their idols and they had to get rid of the books that they had on witchcraft. They were turning to Jesus and all of that. And often we have things that we just need to get rid of as we're turning to God. I have a lot of crap in my life that keeps me from recognizing the power of the Spirit every day that is there, that the Spirit is there with me every day. Lent is an opportunity to decrap our lives. Is that something we can say? <laughs> Some things are just good disciplines. Other things are things that need to go. Or in a time of repentance, to confess, to bring to the light so that we can actually find healing in them because this is a season of repentance. I'm going to tell you a story, and you're not going to like this story, and I don't really want to have to tell you this story. But when we moved into the house that we're in right now, within that first year that we were in the house, there were these weird events that were happening with our smoke detectors. And randomly, our smoke detectors would go off. And I'm not talking about, like, the, the battery beep. I'm talking about the actual alarm would go off. But it would just happen at interval, not, you know, nothing measured. Like it would happen for a long time, and then it wouldn't happen. And then a short little blip would happen, and then nothing. Sometimes it would happen like once in a week. Sometimes it would happen several times. It was getting really annoying. And one uh, night, it was about midnight, everybody's sleeping in the house. I got four kids. Two of them were pretty young at that time. And suddenly, one of the smoke detectors starts going off. What in the world? I get out of bed, smoke detector stops. Okay. <laughs> I'm just going to wait for it. It may not happen again, but it could happen again. It did. It happened again. Okay. I'm starting to track down the sound. I need to figure out which smoke detector is causing the noise. Finally, I figure it out. It's a smoke detector I didn't even know that we had in our house. It was like tucked up in this area upstairs. Anyway, Steph is trying to like calm the boys down and keep them in bed because they're starting to cry. It's midnight, like I said, so I'm trying to operate in the dark. I get a chair and I go up in the dark and I pull down the smoke detector and I unplug it and really quickly I start running downstairs so I can take it out into the garage. And as I'm running down the stairs, I feel a little something on my neck and I brush it off and then I feel it again and then I get downstairs into the light and I am covered head to toe in ants, covered. And I look at the smoke detector and it's just a swarm of ants all over it. And I huck that thing outside, I take off my shirt and I'm just like trying to brush every little ant that I can. And then, I didn't care if it was midnight, I turned on the lights, I went and got, got the vacuum and I committed ant genocide. <laughs> I killed every single ant that I could. Up in the, 
up in the ceiling, all on the floor, everywhere where they had been. They had had a whole nest there. And then I went and called an exterminator to regularly come out to our house to ensure that there are only ever six living creatures in our home and that all six of them are human beings. And that is currently the case. So you can come over to our house. Everything's safe. You won't be swarmed by ants or, or anything like that. It's kind of a picture, though, of some of the crap that we have in our lives. Sometimes it's pretty hidden. It needs to be exposed. It needs to be brought out. And that's a lot of what this time of Lent is. It's an opportunity to hoover the ants out of your life. (laughs) And that makes room for something else. Remember what I said that Lent corresponds to the 40 days of fasting that Jesus did in the wilderness. In Luke chapter 4, he says that after that 40 days, that 40 days where Jesus was fasting the whole time and he was being tempted by the devil, it says that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. That's what we want on the other side of Lent. It's really up to God. There's no guarantee that we're going to experience anything dramatic. But we want to make room for that to happen. And that's where spiritual disciplines, they make room for the work of the Spirit in our lives. They help us to recognize what's most important and to reorder our desires back toward God. So what is it that you're longing for? We're going to move into a time of response now. We're going to respond in two different ways. The first is the regular way that we do every single week where we come up here for communion. Um, When that time comes, you can come up. Communion hosts will be here. Circle around. Take communion. And then uh, the host will pray for you. Um, If you're up in the balcony, you're going to have to come down to these tables in order to receive communion. That's our regular response until the day Jesus comes back to remember what he has done. The other way to respond is to help us prepare to prepare for Lent. So you see that there are these boards on the wall on this side over here as well, and there's some right up on that wall up in the balcony as well. Before you come up for communion, I would encourage you to go to one of those walls and to write down two different things, responses to two different questions. The first one, what practice are you committing to during Lent? There's also a card you can take home so you remember what it is that you wrote down. That card actually hones it in a little bit more into what we're focusing on at at New Hope. What are you committing to fasting from during Lent? So that's the first question that you can write down on any of those boards and then on one of the cards. Second one is, where do you need to see the Spirit move in your life? Where do you need to see God bring in new life for you? Maybe that's even creating a longing for God. Maybe it's a breakthrough in a relationship for you that feels stuck right now. Maybe it's freedom from addiction. I don't know. Where do you need to see the Spirit 
moving in your life. So you're going to write those on the boards, then you're going to come up for communion, and it's just a time for you to reflect on your own life and how you might want to participate in Lent. It's an invitation to be shaped and to be formed by God. I'm going to pray, and then we'll get started. Thank you so much, Jesus, for your grace and mercy in our lives each and every day. I pray, Jesus, for your spirit. I pray, God, for the power of your spirit spirit in the lives of everybody here. I pray, Lord, that you would renew our lives continually and that we would be able to sense that you are actually doing that. I pray, um, I pray, God, that you would reveal your spirit to us in a way that we haven't even experienced before. You are our king. We just lay our lives before you. And I ask God that um, you would respond to us laying our lives before you. We trust you. We know you are good. We love you. Amen. <laughs>